Morning, everyone. We are in the throes of looking at the book of Hebrews, and we're in the fourth chapter this week. Uh, But before we start, I want to ask you a question. Who here needs a nap? Anybody here need a nap? Well, you've got about uh, 35 minutes. No, just kidding. I, I thought as a kid, naps were basically a punishment, right? As a kid, you're out playing, you're out doing your thing, and then all of a sudden, your mom or dad says, okay, it's time for a nap, and you're like, I don't need a nap. And now, I've gotten to the time in my life where if my mom called me up and said, Tim, I think it's about time for you to take a nap. Like, Mom, thank you. Where was that phone call? The last 30 years. I love that. Um, I think we're always looking for a rest, for a nap, for a good night's sleep. I love a good night's sleep. There's nothing worse than having a real important activity that's real exciting the day before. Because if you try to get to sleep, it's one of those elusive moments where Sleep just doesn't come because you're so excited about the next day. You know you need to get up early. You don't want to miss your alarm. And it's really hard to get to sleep. And I think overall it's very hard to find true rest in our lives, even in our day today. And I want to go over quickly five, and rest is a theme throughout the entirety of Hebrews 4. So there's a point to all of this talking about napping, resting, sleeping, and getting a good night's sleep. But there is a way in which the world looks at rest and peace, and it actually offers false ways of getting rest and peace. The first way in which the world will say you can get rest and peace is through entertainment. If you are entertained, if you are preoccupied, if your mind is racing with other thoughts, somehow that gives you rest. The second way in which the world might offer you rest is through experience. If you have enough experiences, if you have enough newness in life, if you have enough new things going on in your life, then you don't have to worry about what's going on in reality, and you can just sort of skate through those turmoils and those difficult moments of restlessness, experience. The third one is through just escape in general. You just escape, you act like you can bury your head in the sand, like nothing worries you, nothing matters to you because you are ignoring reality and you have placed yourself in a false reality, a false narrative, and you can just ignore everything that's important in your life because you escaped from it to this other world, whatever that might be. The fourth way is through excitement. If you can get enough new exciting things happening, if you can be busy every day, and if you can fill yourself with all these new experiences, then the excitement of all that newness can kind of, it kind of just lulls you into this false sense of everything is right with my life. If I fill myself with all these new experiences and excitements, and then lastly, We can lull ourselves into a false sense of peace, security, and rest if we find endorsement for all those things that might bother us or feel guilty in our life. If we find endorsement in other people saying, hey, that's okay, that's okay, don't worry about it, it's okay. Hey, if your conscience bothers you, if you can't get rest, if you can't get peace, that's okay. 
because the rest of the world can't do it either, so you're in good company, don't worry about it. But the real peace and rest and comfort that God gives us, the world cannot give. The world cannot offer a real, lasting, eternal type of peace at all. Now, in Scripture, when we use the word rest, believe it or not, it's not talking about sleeping or taking a nap. It's much deeper than that. It's much more spiritually involved than that. It is basically a sensation of being at peace with God, being able to put all your excuses away, putting all of your defenses away, and saying, Lord, I need you. The way I am, I need you. And you have to satisfy everything within me. I cannot fight against the pressures of sin and temptation. I cannot fight against the guilt anymore. I just need you. Now, in the Old Testament, when Scripture refers to rest, and we'll see this in Hebrews 4, oftentimes it's referring to getting to the promised land. Because once you got to the promised land, once Israel was in the promised land, possessing it and living it there, there was this sense of, Oh, we've accomplished what God has promised us. We are at rest. In the New Testament, it's a little bit different. And I think in our lives, when we talk about an eternal rest, we're talking about what? Death. But we're talking about death in a positive sense, that we're made righteous and holy. And in heaven, opposed to those who don't believe in Christ, they don't get any rest whatsoever. They're in hell. But for the believer, there is an eternal rest of I'm okay after this world passes me by. I am more than okay. I'm good. And so there's a rest. So there's a physical rest and a spiritual rest as well. The physical rest is, hey, taking that nap and letting the world go into a dreamy moment when I can just recharge my batteries. A spiritual rest is that ending that battle between guilt and what God expects of us. And we are no longer enemies and warring with God over what's happening in our heart. And there's a temporary and a permanent rest. A temporary rest is taking that nap. Because as often as you take that nap, you got to get up the next half hour and you get back on with life and then you go, go to sleep. And that repeats itself constantly, time and time again. You get tired, you rest, you get recharged energies and batteries and go at it again, but you got to do it again and again and again and again. They say that in a human life, you will spend more than a quarter of your life sleeping and napping. A quarter of it. A quarter of your life. When we talk about a permanent rest, we're talking about finally ending that war with God. And that our sin no longer distracts us or condemns us, but that we are righteous. And we are at peace with God. As we will see in Hebrews chapter 4, true rest for today, true rest for today and for eternity is only found in Jesus Christ as our hope in this life and the next. If we try to attach peace and rest and comfort and joy in our lives through the world's means, we will never have lasting, permanent rest. 
It's only through Christ as our hope and our trust. Now let's look at the first two verses in Hebrews chapter 4 because this sets the stage for the necessity of faith and how this rest, this permanent rest, spiritual rest, new rest, can be ours. It says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, remember the word therefore is a concluding statement, and it's summarizing chapter 3 that talked about Israel and Moses going through the wilderness and the journey and having that 40 years in the wilderness and finally getting into the promised land. So concluding that thought, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the author is starting out by saying, hey, there is a rest that the Old Testament promised, and that was going into the promised land, but it wasn't the fullness of rest. It wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't the ultimate goal is getting into the promised land. But to the Israelites, they saw that as the ultimate goal. They saw that as ultimate privilege and bragging rights, that they were special because they were God's chosen children. No one else was. And so they kind of had this false sense of once we went into the promised land, we're fine. Nothing can happen to us. We're, we're more than fine. We are blessed because we're not like the Gentiles and the other unbelieving nations that follow false gods and idolatries and human sacrifices. Not us. We're special. We're unique. But they didn't grab onto it by faith. They missed the entire point of what God was trying to present to them in this promised land, that this was just a minuscule amount of what God's mercy would accomplish in your life if you spiritually had faith in him. See, they were looking for the physical benefits of being at rest, and it wasn't just spiritual benefits that God gave him, God gave Israel. It was the spiritual benefits of rest, the blessing of no longer being at war with God because of your sin and everything that accompanies that. Final, true, lasting rest. He continues in verse 3 and 4 about entering his rest. He says, for we who have believed entered that rest as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and that would be in the book of Genesis, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The author of Hebrews now connects a real foundational element and idea of rest, and that is the Sabbath, which the New Testament church now sees as Sunday. It's that one day in which I don't dedicate myself to my own self-enjoyment and passions and work, but I give a portion of that day to God. And we're doing that right now. We're gathering together selflessly, not putting ourselves first, but putting God first, visibly displaying to everyone here that at this moment, gathering together for worship and his word and prayer and offering and thanksgiving, that this is more important than taking care of the chores that I might have at home. I'm giving God my one day. And God says, 
that is an example of what I did. I worked for six days and I labored and I created the universe and life. And then I rested as a Sabbath, as an example for an eternal rest with God. And the author of Hebrews connects that with our entering into the promised land, or Israel entering into the promised land. And he says, let me read that verse 3 again, for we who believed that idea of faith enter that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Why did Israel not enter the rest of God into the promised land at the very beginning? Because they disbelieved. They had no faith. They had disbelief in their heart. They rejected God. They questioned God. They ignored God. They doubted God. And so God says, if you doubt me, you're not going to enter into my rest, physically or spiritually. But those who do, there's a great promise that you will enter into his rest, just like God rested on the seventh day when he created things, so we rest. It's a beautiful, connected example For he who has somewhere spoken about the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. A true example of what eternal rest will look like for the believer. It's finished. Just like Christ on the cross said, it is finished. Declaring to the entire world what? When he said it is finished, what did he declare? It's done. I no longer have anything to do in, fo- in order for my people to be saved. I have nothing left to do. It's accomplished. And proof of that accomplishment was his death and resurrection. That the sacrifice was sufficient and good in God's eyes that he was raised from the dead. And no longer Does Jesus ever again have to be sacrificed? Never again does there have to be a blood sacrifice in all of human history for sin to be dealt with. I know in some circles, even in Christian circles, there is this excitement about what's going to happen when Israel finally takes over Jerusalem and rebuilds the temple and restarts the sacrificial system. That somehow that is a key sign to the believer that something enormously special is going to happen. That is a distraction. Not from God. Nothing has to happen on a sacrificial altar ever again to make you right with God and to give you the promise of rest of soul. Nothing. It is finished. Not it is finished until. No, 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 no. It is finished. That's the rest that God offers the believer. And then, in the last verses of this section, verses uh, 5 all the way through verse 10, it says this. And again in this passage, and he's quoting Psalm 95, again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Because of disbelief, because of mistrust of God, for not following God's commandments, God rightly 
and understand this, rightly punished the disbelief of the children of Israel, including Moses at one point, for not following and representing God rightly. So that that generation for 40 years had to wander the desert and did not enter into the promised land, the physical example of rest. You think we can take God's word at it when he says that there's a negative consequence to disbelieving him? See, we want to take every positive every positive blessing from God. Every time he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Every time he says mercy and love and loving kindness. Every time he says blessing, we're there raising our hand. Yes, I want that promise. I want that promise. I want that promise. But the moment he makes a promise, same authority, same God who makes that promise, if you disbelieve me, if you distrust me, if you ignore me, if you reject me, if you teach contrary and think contrary to me, if you misrepresent me, then there also is a promise. And the promise is, in the nation of Israel, they would not enter into a moment of rest, physically and spiritually. He goes on to say in verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that's kind of talking about us. When the time of the book of Hebrews was written, some almost 2,000 years ago, we weren't born yet. We were still in God's eyes of promise and future because God loved us from the foundation of the world. Before he took a rest, he already knew, I'm going to love them and save them. But we hadn't entered into it. We haven't experienced it. It hadn't been realized yet. So that's why the author says, hey, there are some that still haven't entered into rest. That would have been us at the time. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. That's the nation of Israel. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is so relevant for us today. How many of you have a planner that you use to plan out your week? Anybody have a planner? Now, you have a calendar, whether it's a physical calendar or you use Google Calendar. I mean, most of us have a schedule. If we work, we probably have a schedule. If we don't work, I bet you still have things that you are planning to do all week long, right? You've got plans. Now, you may not ever get to them, but you've got plans, right? Everybody kind of wonders, or, or everyone kind of lives life with some plans in place. Lunch today. What do you have planned? You don't have to answer that, but you're already thinking, oh, goodness, it's a little after 11. Um, probably should think about what we're having for lunch. What about dinner? What about tomorrow's schedule? Everybody has plans put in place. Whether you follow them or whether they are extensive plans, I used to have plans in my calendar when I used to carry a physical calendar a year away just so I knew what was going to be going on. All of the planning, all of the scheduling, all of the dates on the calendar, all the reminders, all the schedules that you have can be completely tossed out the window 
right? Completely tossed out the window. Especially if God says, today, your life is required of you. Now, we don't like to think about that. But the calendar goes away at that moment. Everything you had planned for the day, for the week, for the year, for your life, it's ended. Are we guaranteed lunch today? No. Are we guaranteed going to sleep tonight? No. Are we guaranteed our next birthday? No. Are we guaranteed anything? Well, yes. I mean, Scripture guarantees a lot. But I'm talking about physically and humanly. We're not guaranteed anything outside of God's promises to us. And that's why he says, David says, the author of Hebrews says, and Scripture says time and time again, today, the moment that you exist and you hear these words, this is when you wrestle with it. You wrestle now with the thought of entering into eternal life, either with God as your Father or with God as your judge. You enter into his rest as father, and I guarantee you, there is a peace that overwhelms you with such realness, with such excitement, and such honest permanency that the weight of sin falls off your shoulders like nothing else. But if you enter into eternity with God as your judge, then this is the best day you'll ever have for the rest of your eternity. And that's sad. Because none of us are guaranteed another moment. I forget his name. I forget their names. But in church history... Over the last three or four hundred years, there's been about five, and I, I don't mind saying this because I'm not one who believes in fate or karma, but there have been five historical instances of pastors in the pulpit who have read this text and said, today is the day you need to call upon the Lord because if you don't and you die, you will have no second chances. Five times. A preacher has said that and died on the spot. I forget their names, but I'll, I'll go back and look them up and share them with you. I mean, it's remarkable. And you go, well, how can that happen? Well, give it a second there. Let that go away. See, you never know what's going to happen. You can't plan for it. Life is just like that. You can't plan for it. Something odd and extraordinary and different distracts you and changes exactly what was going on that moment. But these words are not just for history to have a few stories about someone who died while speaking them. 
It's about you. See, I'm not concerned what happens to me when I die. I get such an overwhelming, blessed, joyful thought about that. Not creepy weird, but blessed. Knowing that I'm going to be more than okay, I'm going to be supremely righteous in his eyes, just as if I've never sinned. But I speak these words to you. Will this just be another day at church where you go, oh, I've got plenty of time. I've heard of deathbed conversions. I've seen it. I've been part of that. It's scary for a moment because you know that person's not saved. And I've seen it not work. Where the person dies without Christ, without listening to that message, without heeding it, without paying attention to it, and they don't get a second chance. Not only is there no rest for them, but there's no rest for the family. Don't, don't for one second, though, think I need to tell people that I'm a Christian so my family's okay when I die. No, 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 no. It's got to be real and genuine. They'll see through it, and you'll never fool God. So today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear a call to repentance. If today you hear, I need to believe in Jesus, he needs to be my only hope in this life and the next. If today that is piercing your heart, answer that question, yes, Lord. I don't know what it means. I don't know what life will look like. There's so many unanswered questions. That's okay. God has an eternity to answer those questions for you. You don't need them all answered now. But you do need to answer the one question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, did what he said he would accomplish, and perfectly received the glory of the Father because he did it rightly. Do you believe that for yourself? Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That's today, the gospel. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, he's speaking of that new rest, that spiritual rest, that permanent rest, that rest in which we are free from the struggles and bondages of sin and slavery to sin, and we now have peace with God. He's talking about the application of the gospel. He's talking about the people who believe and have heeded his voice and obeyed and knelt before him and said, Jesus, you are my all in I need nothing else but you. And then he concludes and says, verse 9 and 10, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, once you make that statement and proclamation and change in your heart, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. You can give up trying to please God through your works and your moral life. You can stop ignoring God, disbelieving God, disobeying God. You can stop the fight with Him. You can surrender. And you can kneel before Him. That's hard. 
It's hard to kneel before someone else. It's hard to submit to any authority. But don't look at God just as an authority figure who's big and powerful and you better obey or he'll punish. That's how you look at God when you are being judged by him. But you can look to God as a father, as one who is merciful and gracious and forgiving. And he will do just that, be merciful and forgiving. But today is the day to make that decision. Today, this moment, is the time that God has blessed you with hearing ears and seeing eyes and an understanding mind to wrestle with. Is God truly who he says he is? Or am I really just a spawn of biology in a mixed-up world where religion is just trying to show its authority over mankind? You should know me better by now that I do not preach religion. Religion is not important to me. Traditions of religion are not important. It's relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is what is important. That is what drives us to a knee. Not fear of God's power, but acceptance of God's love. He says in Romans 4 or 5, that is Paul, we can only be saved in entering God's rest by faith in Christ. He says in Romans 4 or 5, to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. It's not the work and the effort that you put in. It's not the distractions that you put in front of you. It's not the effort to live the Christian life that matters to God. It's giving up on that and believing by faith he is as good as Scripture says he is. And you are not as good as you think you are. But he is. He makes us good, though. He makes us righteous. He makes us lovely. He makes us into, well, we take the name Christian because we take on the likeness of Christ. So he does make us lovely and beautiful, but not because of our own works or our own nature, because he changes us. That's what being born again is all about. He changes us into people who are gracious and merciful and not, self, not selfish, but giving. In John chapter 6, uh, Jesus has this event with the people of Israel, or, or in Israel. Um, in chapter 6, starting in verse 22, he says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, they're at the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is going back and forth and teaching and preaching and performing miracles. And so this is one moment in which he's on another side, and uh, the boat had been there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone alone. Other boats from Tiberias had come to the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when that crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into boats and went over Capernaum seeking Jesus. So before this, um, he fed the 5,000 and walked on the water. So this is all kind of happening within that same day, and people were expecting him to show up. He didn't show up, and so they went looking for him. And so that's kind of the scenario about what's happening. Then in verse 25 it says, 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where, where, when did you come here? And Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I said to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. So he knows that from the very get-go, the people that were following him in mass were not there because they believed he was the Messiah, but because they got something. They got something free. They got food. And they were looking for him the next day. Where is he? Where is he? And he had already crossed to the other side. They get in their boats looking for him. And he goes, you're not looking for me as Messiah, as one who will give you rest. You're looking to get something from me. Oh, and how many people, how many people look to God with that bargaining? What can I get from you, God? I'll give you an hour on a Sunday, but what are you going to give me for the rest of the 167 other hours? What are you going to give me? If I tithe, what are you going to give me? If I do this, what are you going to give me? If I volunteer, what do I get? We're always in a what do I get mentality with God. And Jesus points it out and says, I see exactly what you're doing. You're not coming to me as rabbi. You're coming to me as one who gives. So he's already calling them out, and then he says this, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his mark. So Jesus puts the real physical things of this world in perspective. He says, if your entire life is filled with how do I get, 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 you're going to miss getting the most important thing. That is a satisfaction relationship with the Son that the Father has said, nothing is better in this life than Him. You're going to miss out on it. Then he says in the last two verses of this section, verse 28 and 29, then he said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they ask him point blank, how, how, how does all this work, really? How do, how do I get that, that you're talking about? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God. This is, this is the wholeness of what our life's goal should be, that we believe in him who he sent. If we have that down, it doesn't matter what else your calendar says you need to do this week. It's could be very important. I'm not saying discard it. I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying don't work out schedules and plans. But this has to be right first. Everything else is secondary and can be a distraction if the first thing is not set. How do I do the works of God? How do, how do I do what you're saying to do, Jesus? What is it? Believe on him. I'm going to ask the band come up and lead us in this next song. And I'm telling you, if you do not see, or I shouldn't say that, 
I want you to see the connection of these words in Hebrews 4, the rest, and the work of believing on him. It is truly summarized in the words you're going to be singing next. you guys stand with Lord I come I confess bowing here I find my rest without you I fall apart My righteousness 
May the rest and goodness and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore. Go in peace. Amen. If you have not met the team, meaning the team does not know your first and last name, I would encourage you to come up here, grab a free gift,